So our guest on the Baseball Happenings podcast today is Greg Larson, author of Clubby, a minor league baseball memoir, which is out on University of Nebraska Press. Greg, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, Nick. So, Greg, you know, we're looking at the book here, and it's a really wonderful read. I, I got through it in a few days because the story was, you know, really enthralling about your time uh, being a clubby in the Baltimore Orioles organization. Greg, what was your inspiration for writing the book? Initially, I thought that this book was going to be an expose about minor league baseball showing people this is what this is the dark underbelly of minor league baseball this is how much these guys get paid twelve hundred dollars a month uh they're they're fed leftover hot dogs i thought it was going to be an expose completely objective journalism is how i wrote the entire first draft and it, it wasn't until a friend in a creative writing workshop said i don't know why you're not a character in this book because it's so obvious that you want to be one of these players like as a clubhouse attendant i was living in the uh, literally living in the clubhouse the second season that I was there. I was in, I was taking batting practice with the guys. I was completely entrenched in that world. And when I realized, oh crap, I need to be the main, I need to be the main character here. It became a completely different story. It became a story of about love. I realized love of the game relationships, how they get strained in baseball and it's a story about growing up in a game that wants to keep us all young. And I think a big part of my inspiration was to show people a world that even as a hardcore baseball fan, a lot of people never saw short season single A before it got wiped off the map in this last year. So I wanted to show people that sort of secret side of professional baseball. You bring up a good point that, uh, you know, with the reconfiguration of the minor league baseball, right, the Penn League is a you know, thing of the past. And, you know, we have the Brooklyn Cyclones here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you talk about, you know, the, the Cyclones, like I was like, oh, I remember those players and, you know, the guys that you're talking about in the book. But when during the point of you working as a clubby, did it come to you that, hey, maybe I could write a book out of this? Or did it come like well after, you know, you had um, left the organization? Yeah, it came pretty early within a matter of weeks, actually when one of our pitchers, Alex Schmarzo, who at the time was 23 years old, I didn't realize this, but uh, that's a senior citizen in short season single A. Mm -hmm. but a lot of the guys are 18, 19 years old. So Schmarzo as a 23-year-old was a grizzly veteran at that level. And he took me aside a few times and just told me like, hey man, he just gave me a rundown of what was going on there. He gave me this beautiful metaphor that it was like scratching lottery tickets being a minor league baseball player where every day you're paying more money to play and every day you're watching somebody else win that lottery and get moved up and you think to yourself, well, if they can do it, then so can I. But then what happens is you spend another day and another dollar and you realize that you're broken out of time. And now that was a somewhat cynical and somewhat subjective view of the game. But once I heard that perspective of it, even no matter how exaggerated it is, when I heard that perspective from him, I thought, holy crap, I always dreamed of being one of these guys. I dreamed of being a professional baseball player. And I realized that my best case scenario is to be sitting here wishing that I wasn't in the clubhouse. As a player, uh, it was this interesting shift in my perspective of baseball 
And from that moment forward, I kept obsessive notes, like 285 pages of notes over those two summers. I had no idea what the story would look like, but that's the moment I realized there's a story here, even if I don't know what it is. You know, were you like Jim Bouton taking notes in, in plain sight or when, you know, the players were out on the field or, you know, at night, were you, you know, <laughs> writing in your notebook? How did you, you know, take the notes yeah. down? It usually looked like me in the back after a day, I'd be in the equipment closet on my laptop typing things up, but I was open about it. I mean, I would talk about it with guys that I was, that there was a story here that I was an English major. The thing is, um, on a larger scale, writing a clubhouse tell-all is taboo in baseball and maybe every professional sport. Mm -hmm. But there are so many guys who talk about it in the clubhouse, even players, even coaches, anybody. They say, oh, I should write a, a book about a season. Nobody does it. Almost nobody does it. So when I would tell guys I was writing a book, I was just another one who was just flapping his gums. But then it turns out that I actually did something with it. There was a pitcher maybe about 10 years ago who was from Yale who wrote like a minor league tell-all. And I know he caught flack because he said, you know, he accused guys of stuff or exaggerated stories. While, you know, yeah. your book isn't like that where, you know, there's some interesting details, but I don't really think you're there to out anybody. Um, mm -hmm. Did you have to give yourself pause of like, hey, this needs to be left on the chopping block and then this is above board for me to tell? Oh yeah. I think you're referring to Dirk Hayhurst and, um, what Not he did, Dirk. I, I, I'll get the guy's oh, name no? before we're done, but yeah, it was with the angels that I remember. Ah, gotcha. Um, yeah, I, there's this strange phenomenon when you're writing a memoir in the first draft, I had to just put all of that out of my mind. Uh, I had to think about everybody as characters as opposed to real people in the first draft, because then if I start thinking, Oh, is this going to hurt somebody's feelings? If I tell this story about a, a player attacking somebody else with a baseball bat, I'll, is this going to hurt somebody's feelings if I make this player look – if I make Alan Mills, if I show him in my interactions with him and he might think that that's an unsavory perception of him. I had to put all of that out of my mind in the first draft. But then in the editing process, I had to think to myself, okay, these are real people that I'm writing about. I mean, there's one story – I can't say it out loud. I can't say it in public, but it's about a certain Hall of Fame pitcher and some unsavory, de a Hall of Fame player, not mm. a pitcher, and some unsavory details about his um, playing career that I think would be a bit of a bombshell, but I could never fully verify it. I could only hear rumors of it. So it just did not make it into the final cut of the book. But that was the forefront of my mind. Am I going to hurt these people bringing up old ghosts from 10 years ago? And so far, everyone's been really positive. They've been grateful that I created this snapshot of two seasons in minor league baseball and that maybe more people will know what it's really like down there at the bottom of the major leagues, or minor leagues, rather. In the last two to three years, a lot more attention has been given to the conditions, the low pay in the minor leagues. Uh, there was a lawsuit brought about by uh, Garrett Brocious against you know uh, professional baseball about this. And there's definitely more awareness, but... As you said, a lot of people do not know what goes on with minor leaguers trying to manage their finances. And, you know, in the book, you wrote that you realized with your salary as a clubby, where you probably tell people what you made, they probably were like, wow, that's not a lot of money. But then when you put it up against what the guys got for those three or four months, you actually out earned 
everybody on the ball club. Um, oh, what do you think fans absolutely. are going to pick up Sometimes about that reality? Yeah, I mean, if you took away signing bonuses, mm-hmm. and granted, some guys got massive signing bonuses, seven-figure signing bonuses, but that's one guy per team per year sometimes. Right. Um, if you take away signing bonuses, these guys were getting paid about $290 a week. They'd be making less than $4,500 a year as players, and I was making three times as much as them. So these guys, and then on top of it, they're paying me dues. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like and, they're paying you. Right. Right, which to me was just like another tax, even as a, a clubby then. I mean, if I'm being perfectly frank, and I think my therapist might tell you this, that a big reason I wrote this book is because there's a certain level of guilt that I felt at those years where I felt like I was a part of a system that took advantage of these guys that I considered my friends. And nobody questioned the fact that, okay, minor leaguers at single A are making about $1,200 a month, and the clubby is making three times as much as that. And it, none of it made any sense to me. So those guys, I mean, they would, they would cope by um, my first year. I had an apart, a two bedroom apartment and any given time I'd have up to five guys sleeping in my living room because they didn't want to pay rent out of their paltry salaries. Guys would be living off of peanut butter and jelly that I'd feed them after the games or leftover concession stands food. A lot of guys would stay with host families if they were able to um, find a host family. Um, I mean, it's just such a strange world. And I think people are going to gather that from reading the book. I just wrote a piece on Mike Trout and the nutrition, uh, the nutrition that they angels work with. They spoke to the team dietitian. They gave me a lot of background and it was really an eye opener, you know, and she had said, well, like with the minor leaguers, they definitely lack resources. And she's like, you know, people are always like willing to like give food and other things like the major league club and like these are the guys that have the money and she's like give it to the minor leaguers um you talked right. about peanut butter jelly sandwiches i know in the book you also refer to you know how you had to go shopping uh you know for the teams to pick up food and they were giving you tips uh you know maybe how to do it on the cheap and then also like negotiating with the concession stand to get leftovers can you really tell us what was in a typical spread you know that that you put out or that when you first started which you had to curate on your own because it definitely didn't sound like fine dining from you know what i had read in the book no and i mean this might get a little bit gross but for uh i'd feed them two meals a game uh two meals per home game there'd be a post bp spread that would usually consist of cut oranges cut watermelons bananas any other any other cheap fruits I could find, maybe a few carrots, animal crackers. Mm-hmm. It was really like a, I was like a soccer mom in there. And I give them cold cuts. And what I would do with the cold cuts, turkey, ham, and the real big, like two processed turkey and ham, not like nice boar's head or anything like that, and white bread. And so sometimes I wouldn't even put condiments out because um, it would get too expensive because those condiments would go bad too fast. Mm-hmm. And then if guys did not eat the turkey slices, I would bring it into the back and I would refold it, put it into the fridge and put it out the next day as though it was new, slimy. even though it had been sitting outside for, yes, slimy is right. Um, and if it got like a, a sort of yellowish tint on the outside, I would just fold it so that the other side of the, of the meat was facing the players on the plate. Just gross, dude. But I was doing that because I wanted to shave... I wanted to shave a little bit off the top. I wanted to spend less of the dues money that paid me on food than I would have a higher profit. And then after the game, I would slip the 
um, the VIP level would have these like hot plates, these buffets of sometimes nicer food, like grilled chicken and vegetables or pastas. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the game, I'd go up there, all the kids working in those kitchens, I'd slip them 10 bucks, 15 bucks, and they'd give me all of the leftovers from VIP. And I'd quickly try and spread the food out so it looked like it wasn't half-eaten leftovers and uh, get it on the hot plate so it was presentable to the players. And sometimes I'd barely have enough to feed the team. It was just a crapshoot of what leftovers I could get. Um, and then the visiting team, the, the visiting team, I would give them – we were already getting leftovers for the home team, right? And then if we didn't eat our leftovers, I'd pack it up and then give it to the visiting team the next day, just heat heated up in the microwave they didn't know any better mm-hmm. that's the food situation in single a baseball and and you know these guys are not making much money they're trying to play pro ball and they're eating like uh almost substandard food and that's no knock on you right but you know you, you're not bringing out like a, a a spread that's been like calculated by a nutritionist um how do you no. think that affects their play on the field right it's not like they have a ton of extra money to go out and supplement that Oh, no. Not only did they not have the extra money, sometimes they didn't even have the extra time to go. Even if they wanted to go out and get some better food, they didn't really have the time to. And so, I mean, I think, I don't know, man. To me, a lot of those guys were just cannon fodder. I don't think the, I don't think the parent club, the Orioles, thought that 95% of those guys were going to do anything other than just be, you know, career minor leaguers. So, quite frankly, I don't think the parent organization cared. And I think the only reason they are you know, minor league teams are getting nutritionists and they're getting a more, uh, they're getting more hands-on care in the clubhouses. Ostensibly, we'll see how that plays out. I think that's only because people are starting to find out what minor league baseball looks like for the players. Otherwise, they would have let it slide like this forever. So now, you know, you said like, look, the organization probably is not that vested in most of the guys and People who follow baseball know that they're right. They're like, you know, a lot of these guys are quote unquote filler players in organization. That's not to take anything mm-hmm. away from them, right? As you said earlier, you wanted to play. I played in college. I had a few tryouts. Like everybody wanted to get there, but you realize at some point, like you're just not good enough. And even the guys that are there are better than you know most of the guys who played college in high school because they're there and you know we're not. Um, right. Do you feel like the minor leagues by con- the contraction? will maybe allow the parent clubs to put a little more attention into the players that are in their system? I mean, that's my, that was my dream when I first read, when I first started writing this book, I was like, I think contraction is great for baseball. Um, A lot of people look, major league baseball has shown us time and time again, that they're not willing to take care of all of their minor leaguers the way we'd like them to. I mean, they've increased their wages between 38 and 72 percent which is great but it's like saying we're increasing federal minimum wage by 50 percent it's like okay it sounds good but we're just going from seven dollars and 25 cents to eleven dollars like what are we doing here and so i'm i think it's an opportunity for them to spread more resources to the minor leaguers there's still a lot of work to be done but it's like you know these people who say that major league baseball should not be getting rid of these team these 40 teams that they're contracting it's like a, a parent a negligent parent who wants to give a kid up for adoption. Okay, they have the resources to take care of all their children, but who are we to say that a negligent parent should be forced to take care of all of these kids? If they want to get rid of some of these obligations, these employees, then maybe that's better for everybody. Yeah, maybe you know they'll step up for other players. We have here right. Greg Larson who's with us, again, author of Clubby, 
a minor league baseball memoir that's out on University of Nebraska Press, and it's about his time, uh, two seasons in the uh, minor league affiliate for the Baltimore Orioles in uh, Aberdeen uh, Ironbirds. And uh, if people are familiar with Aberdeen, uh, they played at uh, Cal Ripken Stadium. Do you have any interactions with the the gentleman who was his namesake? I know you mentioned him briefly uh, in the book. I think one day he he came in, but uh, was that the only time you saw him? Right. I saw Cal Ripken Jr. twice, I believe, in my two years as a club. He never actually met the guy who shook his hand. But on the other hand, he had a lot bigger fish to fry. A lot of people don't know this, but in 2012, the first year that I was in the clubhouse, his mom, Violet, was kidnapped and abducted oh, for yes. most most of a day. And he was working with the FBI. They had a hundred thousand dollar reward out for any information. She recently passed away this year uh, in March and they still don't know what the, they don't know. Not only do they not know who it was, but they don't even know a motivation for this kidnapping. And so he had a lot bigger fish to fry than to interact with the clubhouse attendants. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it, I know he's done a lot for for baseball, especially like the complexes, like right behind there. And you know they've they've made a really substantial business off of uh, Ripken Baseball. Oh yeah, I mean Ripken and Aberdeen—that's their hometown. So the two are synonymous, and they have that big, they have this amazing complex where kids from all over the world come play in the Ripken World Series, and they have these small replicas of Wrigley Field, Memorial Stadium, Camden, all these amazing stadiums, and they come in, and they, I mean. They've built a dynasty there around Ripken's name. Yeah, they 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 have, you know, and he's the legend of the game. And uh, I met him many years ago at spring training. And, you know, even after mm. a full hot spring training, after bringing the record, you know, he came back out on the field and signed autographs for an hour. I mean, it was, you know, it was incredible to see. He knew people were there. You know, he knew people were there from this is when the Orioles were in, uh, uh, you know, Fort Lauderdale. But, you know, back to your story about you know, being, being a club, you also spoke about relationships. Um, you talk about, you know, you trying to manage a relationship at such a young age in the book. And as I read it, mm-hmm. I'm like, Oh, I think I see where this is going. But you know, I was, right. that was also the part of seeing that pan out, but also, you know, all the players, you have players from foreign countries, you have players from all over the, you know, the, the United States and they're, you know, put in this clubhouse and a lot of them are away from home. First time, fresh out of high school, don't know how to manage their money, don't know how to manage their living space, oh, yeah. which I'm sure you saw, you know, when they came and stayed with you, right? Or or feed themselves right. or do their laundry, right? Um, how does that game strain – how did the game first, I guess, strain your personal relationship? And then what did you see, you know, with the players? Yeah, with me, I mean, the strains – one of the big themes in the book is the parallel between the issues that I went through and what the players went through. For me – my relationship, I was with a girlfriend at the time, my college sweetheart, and she could see my desire to chase a dream that was no longer realistic for me to be a, a professional baseball player. And she could see that my being in that clubhouse was not good for me. It was like chasing a dream that had passed so long ago. I mean, at that point zero nine one, my senior year of high school, I was not a prospect to be a professional baseball player. And yet there I was showing up to the clubhouse year after year and the second year becoming even more entrenched in that world and it got to the point where in the off season between my uh, 2012 and 2013 seasons i wasn't doing anything when i went back to live with my girlfriend i was drinking beer at 11 a.m i was playing madden 2007 on playstation 2 franchise mode just too much time playing video games 
And she just stopped and looked at me and she said, do you really want to go back to Aberdeen? Because that's the path that you're on right now. And it, I mean, it messed with my relationship to the point where, well, it, it was a big strain on us. I won't give away what happens in the end. But what I saw from the players, I mean, as far as romantic relationships go, that I didn't see as much of that strain. What I saw is family relationships, particularly with Dominican guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, perfect example, one of our pitchers, Jose um, Figueroa, he, in the middle of batting practice, went to another pitcher, an American guy who spoke decent English, and said that he needed to get some money back home to the Dominican immediately. And the American guy was like, Harry, he said, okay, that's fine. We'll just find you at Western Union tomorrow. And Jose Figueroa said, no, we need to get it there right now. And so as the game, as the warmups were ending and the game was going on, these are bullpen pitchers, so nobody cared that they were missing. These guys went to Western Union to send money to this guy's family, the Dominican. And we don't know exactly why they needed it so urgently, Mm -hmm. but it was very clear that if they did not get it soon, it was going to be a problem. And so that's a lot of pressure on a guy. You, some of these guys, especially from the Caribbean nations, maybe they have an entire family or an entire family system depending on them making it. And a lot of them wash out. I, I saw a guy, a Dominican guy, walk out in the middle of a game because he saw the writing on the wall that he was going to get cut and he didn't want to get shipped back to the Dominican. So he wanted to keep his visa and, and stay in the U.S. I mean, and so he just bounced. Me. He just bounced, dude. And you know what? Actually, a lot of those guys wind up here in New York City. So when I yeah. was uh, in college, I played in a league called uh, the Soria League, named after Pedrin Soria, who's it was he ran the Puerto Rican Winter League. And uh, a lot of the guys who played in that league were former minor league guys who wound up in New York City because they could get a job here. You know, there were minor league guys that just never, never went back. You know, whether it was legally yeah. or or not, right? They wound up in New York City working somewhere. And then they're playing, you know, high-level semi-pro baseball on the weekends because, like, that's their respite. Right. I mean, that's what uh, this guy who bounced in the middle of the game, he tried to come back to the stadium the next day and catch a bus to Brooklyn for a road trip. And the Mm -hmm. Orioles said, no, you're not getting on this bus. You're released. Um, There's no doubt in my mind that's probably – what he was trying to do. Well, that's when I was reading that, that's what I thought. I'm like, he's just trying to go to New York city. You know what I mean? Maybe to link up with somebody that he knows. So, you know, they, whatever, give him a bed or whatever it is. And, you know, he'll figure out a job instead of having, you know, to go back because there's, you know, I think we fail to realize like what we might look at like a low wage work here. It still trumps a lot about what they could get in the Dominican. And then the money that they still can send back is still rather significant, even though we may not look at it that way. Oh, 100%. I mean, that's the big thing that I saw in the minors. There, there are more minor league Dominican players than there are in the or I should say a larger percent of minor leaguers are Dominican than there are a percentage of Dominican major leaguers. And so I think that a lot of these teams just look at them as they have the boatload mentality. They're going to sign a bunch of Dominican guys for cheap, maybe $10,000, and then if one of them – winds up being a star, it's all worked out and they kind of don't care about the rest and they don't really care about, you know, teaching them or having a translator in the clubhouse for them Mm -hmm. or helping them figure out the finances. It's just, they're left to their own devices even more than the American guys. And I see the Dominican guys just getting thrown under the bus even more for the most part. You know, speaking of the finances, um, 
What's like the silliest, dumbest thing you saw guys do with the little bit of money they had? Yeah, I don't know if there was a guy who like came in with a bonus or like you would just see guys make their paychecks evaporate. Like, you know, I reading the book, I realized like, wow, the life is definitely not as glamorous as people think. Like it's it's a grind. You're at the ballpark all the time. You're in small towns. It's not like you're in, you know, New York City or Los Angeles or Miami where like things are popping all the time. Like I'm sure Aberdeen right. goes to sleep at 10, 10 p.m. Um you know, so guys had to figure out a way to entertain themselves. Did you see guys like, I don't know what this guy's doing with his money, but it seems like he's just lighting it on fire. <laughs> it was with that amount of money with 1200 bucks a month, it'd be the smallest things. Like if guys showed up with new, new clothes, Ed Hardy shirts, but <laughs> I, I did not see any huge purchases, but if I see an Ed Hardy shirt, those things, they sparkle from a mile away. Right. I'm like, dude, you didn't pay me dues this last homestand. I know you had money to buy that new Ed Hardy shirt. <laughs> I, I'd be going up to them like a little Boy Scout with my fanny pack and my notepad and saying, well, you owe me $21 in dues. What's up with the shirt? But like then big TVs, big cars, there was not enough money going around for that kind of stuff. Right. Because I guess the bonus guys don't really get sent to uh, short season A-ball. No, they're there. Um, 2012, Kevin Gossman, first round draft pick. He was with us for, I think, two starts, and he was gone so fast it was like he was never there. Um, Hunter Harvey in 2013, he was a early round guy. He was with us for maybe the last couple weeks of the season. And so if they are in our clubhouse, they are just shooting through. Yeah, I remember when Conforto was in uh, Brooklyn, and, uh, you know, he tore that league up, but it. I, I never saw Brooklyn so excited, you know, like people were coming out just to see him. Oh yeah. I mean, that was exciting, especially, you know, rehab guys, major league rehab guys, especially in the, um, you know, in the Orioles organization, all the Orioles affiliates are right nearby. Um, Bowie, Delmarva, Aberdeen are all near Baltimore. And so when we'd get a rehab starter food, I mean, that, Yes, dude. Uh, post-game food. That was the hotness. We had, if somebody, so, you know, a major leaguer comes to a minor league team and does a rehab start, it's customary for them to buy the post-game spread. And in minor league baseball, the post-game spread is of utmost importance. Nope. Nobody cared if I washed their pants well or anything like that. All they cared about was good food. Brian Roberts. So we have a bunch of fans in the stadium coming to see Brian Roberts in 2012 do a rehab stint, all-star second baseman. Mm -hmm. uh, he shows up too late to buy the spread in his first game, but he comes by the, uh, the equipment closet and says, hey, I want to get a spread for the guys in the second game. What do you think I should get them? I was like, Applebee's is nearby. That's, that's fine dining in Aberdeen, Maryland. He's like, cool, I'll get them Apple Applebee's after the game tomorrow. And so word spreads in the clubhouse. It's like whispers the secret uh, Applebee's. Everyone, we're getting Applebee's, and everyone's all stoked about it. Nobody cares about the game. The next day it rolls around. It's supposed to be Brian Roberts' second start for the rehab stint. Uh, Pre-game, we're all just watching ESPN. All of a sudden, we see Orioles manager Buck Showalter and Brian Roberts holding a, po uh, a press conference, and they say that they're shut it because his his rehab start the night before in Aberdeen went so poorly. His oblique is still hurt. He's shutting it down for the season, getting season-ending surgery. All of Orioles Nation, everybody in the state of Maryland is like, oh, my God, there goes our second baseman. And all of us in the clubhouse were like, oh, my God, there goes our post-game spread. Like, 
that <laughs> that's how important that little stuff is just for our happiness. We lost Applebee's. That's more important than losing the game or losing our second baseman. Yeah. Right, because the games, I guess, after a while become inconsequential. Like, I got that from reading the book, right. that the win and, the wins and losses really weren't the thing. No, I mean, that second season, they were more important because we started to get closer to maybe being a playoff team for the first time in Aberdeen Ironbirds history. Mm-hmm. But that first season in 2012, when we were 22 and 100 million, whatever it was, it was like, no, wins and losses did not matter. Coaches started to X out days on the calendar just to count down until the end of it. It was more like, am I working on something new with my swing or am I getting my balance point on my pitches? It was more like those were the emphases rather than the wins and losses. Yeah. And, you know, I guess I got to be tough for the coaches too, right? You had a lot of former major leaguers, you know, who were coaching and, you know, they're not getting probably paid the best either. And they're, they're, you know, beating the bushes um a lot of characters that you describe in the book between you know allenson and mills and then you know matt marola the second season i'm sure i'm missing like mm-hmm. one or two guys or a brad comisk but like um what did you see from the former major leaguers like were they really excited to be there or was it just like another job to them like were they hoping that they'd get called up to the big league team too what did you see it was a widespread of all of those things you just said like um, Alan Mills, I, I don't know. Alan Mills is a complicated character for me personally. And just in general, Alan Mills was our pitching coach both seasons and yeah, 12 years in the majors. He had been in some pretty famous brawls in major mm-hmm. league baseball. And he and I, you know, I was green. I was, I was new and he was a, um, you know, he was a veteran. I thought that he wanted to move up to the majors just like me. And I think I misread him. And I didn't realize that until recently when he called me after reading the book. First of all, he thought that I made him the villain of the book. And I was like, no, dude, you're not the villain. If anything, the Orioles front office is the villain. But like Mills was not the villain of this book. I think I think he was content to be an Aberdeen. He felt comfortable with his career. Mm-hmm. I think somebody like Matt Marullo, who is no longer in baseball, I think he just really loved being around the kids. Like he, he loved coaching kids. Like he just loved whether their kids were 10 or whether they were a 22 year old first round draft pick. He just loved seeing somebody working on something in the cages and giving them a little piece of advice and helping them fix it. You know, I mean, he's from somebody a like, baseball family, right? Like I had interviewed his, you know, now deceased uncle Lenny Marullo, who was like really one of like the last old, old timers played in the world series, with the Cubs, he even played with Hiram Bithorn. who was like the first, Puerto Rican right. uh, to play in the majors and that's what I'd interview him about and uh you know I don't know I met Marillo years ago he just he seemed like a guy you know like a baseball that just enjoyed it and and the bit about him working with you I think kind of solidifies that yeah he took me into the cages one night and worked with me on my swing I mean granted Matt love him to death he's the nicest guy but he was drunk off his ass most of that season <laughs> and so we're we're drunk in the clubhouse late one night and before a road trip and he took me into the cages and helped me on my swing and I was like it's the best batting lesson I've ever had in my entire life right he cared so deeply and then when he left you know he left me a message he left me a handwritten letter saying that he loved that night in the cages and I had no idea that he'd even remember it Mm -hmm. let alone remember it at the end of the season 
so like that dude his family that, that was another part of of the book that i cut out just because it was too much raw research it was apropos of nothing really but i did a lot of research on him and his grandpa and his dad and their baseball dynasty that had to get cut out from the book that was the most painful thing to cut out just because that family is i love them so much yeah well you know some things you 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 have to make tough decisions when you're you know you're narrowing down you know narrowed down a, a book like this what 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 did you find out about yourself during this journey? Not just like, you know, you talked about the relationship a little bit earlier, but also about yourself. Cause you know, I'm reading it and I'm seeing like, here's, you know, a young man at the time, like trying to find his way, you know, and you're here and you're, you're doing like kind of a thankless job, right? Like mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're cleaning the uniforms, you're cleaning the clubhouse, like, you know, and I'm like, is this the life for like a guy in his young twenties? But you know, you lived it and, and, yeah, what did what did it do for you now that you've had some time away from it? That experience. Yeah, that's the that's the question, man. That's a question that I've been grappling with for a long since I first was a clubby. I think at the time it made me cynical. Like I thought baseball was this magical thing, and it still is that. But at the time, I just felt like you said, I'm thankless. I felt self-absorbed I felt like baseball was not this amazing thing that I thought it was because look at look at the foundation of it here in the low level minor leagues but now as I'm starting to put this book out there and I'm starting to think about it and talk about it more I don't know I I think it deepened my relationship with the game Mm -hmm. is the best way I can put it where before yeah maybe I had a boyish view of who's who's at the top of the standings and who has going to win the batting title, all this stuff. I don't care about that stuff anymore. And I thought that me not caring about that anymore meant that I fell out of love with the game. But what I realize now is I care more about the persons, the personalities and the, the people behind the numbers more like Trey Mancini coming back from cancer. I care about that. Uh, his batting average this year, I could not give less of a crap about that. Mm-hmm. I thought that meant that I was cynical, but I realized that it's just maybe a more, for me, a more mature relationship to the game. Yeah. And, you know, you had an experience that, again, a lot of people wanted to have, right? Like you were there for, for two years and you said that you couldn't get there as a player. So like, what'd you do, you know, in college, right? You wound up doing like a similar type of job <laughs> where like, you were the manager for the university, uh, right. you know, where you went and then, you know, that kind of parlayed into, you know, this job. So you got to be around it and see it from that side, which a lot of people don't, right? So many people play the game and want to be around the game. And you had this level of access for two years that, you know, we don't have. Yeah. And I'm grateful for that. I'm so grateful for that because I get to have this perspective of being on the team, but also still a fan. Mm. And it forced me to grow up. Like that's, a lot of what this book is about, even if it's not hitting it on the head, it's about what it's like to grow up in a game that keeps a lot of us young. Yes, right. And and being in the in the clubhouse, you see all the hijinks and the tomfoolery and all of the kind of immature stuff that goes on along with the real emotions that you know we spoke about guys being homesick and guys wanting to leave and 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 coming to the realization like they're not gonna get to the you know, major leagues, like when you're in between yeah. the lines, you go and put that uniform on. It's like, you can be a boyish kind of kid again, because that's like what the game celebrates. Yeah. And that's a beautiful part of it, but it's 
like it is in any part of life, it can become complicated if that that boyish part lasts too long. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, like you said, you said, uh, you know, about the player that was like a little bit older, right? That he mm-hmm. he kind of had that viewpoint, you know, of it. But even then, as it goes along the book, like he finds he finds himself again. Like he's always on the edge of leaving, but he gets pulled yeah. back. And I feel like that's a consistent theme in the book, right? Like we're always kind of maybe on the edge of leaving baseball, but you find a way to get pulled back in. Yeah, it's really addicting. The highs and the lows of it can be addicting. I think about it like a gravitational pull, like everything that you do because what happened with schmarzo that pitcher that you mentioned is that every time he would give up and he'd stop caring that's when he would finally be in the moment and he would finally start pitching well i mean once he stopped caring about moving up or getting cut all this stuff he went two weeks without giving up a run Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden he got moved up to delmarva and then he just gets blasted because all this it meant too much again so this like cycle in a lot of ways it's like uh it's like a complicated relationship it's like being in a really complicated relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend who's a lot of ups and downs can be addicting even if it's not always good for you yeah a lot of guys can't handle that like you know you're prepped your whole life to play the game but nobody really sits with you or works with you consistently or who has the resources to go to like a sports psychologist to handle this like how can you right. stay in the moment and not worry so much about, gosh, if I have a bad outing, am I going to get like a pink slip? Which is a real thing for, you know, professional ball players. Like if I don't hit for a week or two, am I going to get that tap on the shoulder to come to the manager's office? Yeah. It, what's even more messed up about it is sometimes there was no, it seemed to be no rhyme or reason. A guy with a 5.75 ERA would get moved up and a guy with a 2.0 ERA would get released. Mm-hmm. It was the strangest thing. It was like, there's nothing you could do that would change the outcome. Um, in a certain kind of way that might make it easier to stay in the moment because there's more that seems out of your hands. But for a lot of guys, I think it, it messed with them. Did you, what did you see from the players skill wise from spending two years in a minor league clubhouse? Like you said, like, like most of these guys weren't going to get up. What did you see skill wise that maybe, you know, was a reason why they weren't going to pan out? Because again, all these, these, these players were, top high school, top college guys. And then, right. you know, they get in this atmosphere and it's like, you're, you're not, you're not going to make it. Yeah. The biggest thing I saw was guys who would get signed or drafted because they were flamethrowers who mm-hmm. couldn't throw strikes. That was the biggest one. And quite frankly, I don't think the organization at that point might not have cared that much. They'd keep them. If somebody could throw 97, 98, they'd keep them around whether or not they could throw strikes just to see, if they could eventually find the zone. I mean, skills-wise, when I would go to games in at Camden and I'd compare them to Aberdeen, at the major league level, guys still make mistakes, but they're much better at minimizing each other's mistakes than they were at the low-level minor leagues. It's a scoop here, a swipe there, a throw that's compensated for at second base from the catcher, just a little, those little compensations for mistakes uh, at the low levels, guys just hadn't picked that up yet. And the mentality thing, too. I mean, we had a pitcher, Sebastian Vader, who wound up being our ace pitcher in 2013. But he had, in uh, 2012, I mean, he was so unlucky. He had a three-something ERA, and he was one in seven, I believe, that year. And he just had this mentality that everybody was going to screw him to the point where I remember our shortstop made an error behind him. And this pitcher sarcastically gave a round of applause to the shortstop in the middle of the game after an error. 
that kind of stuff, you're probably not going to see that on a major league field for a good reason. Like those mentalities, uh, those guys get washed out. He did not make it any farther than high A, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you can't. You can't do that, right? Like you can't show up your no. teammates or think that maybe they're purposely not, you know, playing up. To, this isn't major league, right? Like they're they're not, you know, they're not purposely kicking balls because they don't like no. it, you know. Um, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's not happening, but, you know, Greg, the, like I said, the book was a, a wonderful, just a wonderful look inside that, that life. And this isn't so much of you telling stories about like each individual player. It really is the side that we don't get to see. And it made me reflect also a lot, like on my youth, because I was sitting there of like, Hmm, as like a younger man, could I go through this experience because I was, I was trying to get the why of like, you know, why'd you come back the second season? You know, why, like, why is he putting mm-hmm. himself, you know, through this? Like, wh- why did you, ch- well, let me get this. Why did you choose to live in the clubhouse? Like, you know, I, I know you talk about that, but like, that's, that's not an easy move either. Like I'm going to just set up shop in the clubhouse. Like, was it really financial no. or, or what appealed to you? I mean, on the surface, on the surface, it was purely financial. I was living with my girlfriend in the off season in South Carolina, and I didn't want to pay for rent in South Carolina and Maryland at the mm. same time. So that, but that was just a rationalization. I mean, psychologically, that was like my unconscious way of becoming even more entrenched in this world of I'm so close to baseball now that I'm literally living in the stadium. And there's a certain part of me that at that time I was addicted, uh, I was drawn to squalor in different ways Mm. where something that I could strive for and, um, you know, I could struggle for made it that much more valuable to me. So living in the clubhouse was an easy way for me to rationalize this sometimes, I don't know, irrational behavior, I guess. But I'm curious as a reader, yeah. I mean, I can tell you what I think, but as a reader, I'm, I am curious why you thought, if you're just looking at that person as a character, what do you think his motivations were for coming back that second season at all? I think there were a lot of unanswered questions, right? So mm-hmm. I try to put myself in that shoes of like, if I was, you know, early 20s, I was in a relationship, like, why would I come back knowing that you know there there was a strain and i i feel like i i feel like maybe you were trying to find something else out about yourself like mm-hmm. whether there was some sort of inherent challenge about going back to it but like could you handle it or was this was this really the route i wanted because maybe stuff was uncertain with the relationship you know back home right right and that's that's what i kind of got out of it because i i didn't expect the second season let's put it like that when i got about halfway through the book mm-hmm. i thought I thought there was just going to be more detail about the first season and that I, when it got to like you contemplate, I'm like, oh, he's not going back. And he went back. And that, that was definitely a surprise to me. Yeah. I think you hit it, man. Like there were more, it, it was, it was almost like I had to prove to myself that that world was as seedy as I thought it was <laughs> in order to not come back later. You know, like, I'm going to go all in on this. I'm going to be living in the clubhouse. I'm going to be the scheming clubby. I'm going to be running all these scams with bats and paraphernalia, all this kind of stuff. And prove to myself that this is so much what I don't want that I can finally have an excuse not to come back after this season. Right. And that's what I I was going to ask you is when did you get to the point that you decided, like, I'm out? 
like i'm not going to try to move up in the system like like i'm just i i had it uh, i'm out it's time for a different look in life yeah when i um after that second season when a certain orioles minor league uh executive promised me a spot at spring training to come back as a clubby in Sarasota, and I never got that call. That's when I realized, okay, this is over. Um, this is all just BS. This is just me playing. I don't know what. This is just me. Me putting on a jersey is a perfect symbol for me just pretending. It's me fantasizing about something that's never going to happen, and me going back is that's it. When I didn't get that call, that was it. But but it did happen in the sense that you know you got to do this for for two years and, and mm-hmm. get the experience with, you know, with all these players and, and meet all these different people. I don't even want to say characters. They had, they all had their own character, right? And you'll have a lifetime mm-hmm. of stories, you know, that, that you can tell. And a lot of them are in this book. And I'm sure a lot of them, you know, if we sat down and had a beer together, right. You, you, you know, <laughs> you could tell yep. quite a few more of them. Um, right. And, and, you know, now this serves as a resource for like, you know, if people really want to get in the game, right. What would you, recommend to them right because i'm sure there's you know other young younger people out there or even people that are maybe looking for a career change like i want to get involved and like i want to be you know part of a an organization and this might be my way in you know what would what would you tell them about how this book might either influence their decision yeah influence their decision <laughs> i mean this is not going to be the media friendly answer but it's the truth like go into it with clear eyes because what i saw there made me not necessarily want to go back. You know, I, it's going to change your view of baseball forever for better or for worse. If you go into working in professional baseball, I can't watch a baseball game the same way I used to. Am I better off for it in some ways, but to a certain extent, if I had the option when I was 21 to say, Hey, you're going to be able to look at baseball with these idyllic uh, perfectionist eyes forever. I probably would have taken that route. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not the most, I don't know, it's not the most PC or whatever answer, but I'd say uh, maybe when you read this book, it'll change your perspective on what this world looks like. Right. And I, I definitely opened me up to, you know, just that, that because you, ne- you never think about the clubhouse person, right? You, you think about the players and there is a lot of stuff documented about players, what they do with them, low salaries and, you know, how they're living four right. to five guys to a house just to get by and, you know, cleanliness is out of the window and all that stuff. But then, you know, who's the person that's prepping, you know, all the, the, the situations for them and the clubhouse, you know, guy has a ton of responsibilities. Um, a lot that we don't, you know, that we don't know. And, uh, you know, you definitely outlined them in the book for all of us, Greg, if people want to get in touch with you, um, you know, via social media or your website, how can they go about doing that? And then how can they go about getting a copy of the book? Yeah. The easiest way to do all of that is to go to the website, clubbybook.com. That's C L U B B I E book.com. And my publisher, you can pre-order the book, buy the book there. All there's all kinds of cool content, deleted scenes, everything. And my publisher made the Kindle version of the book available for $1 until April 8th on Amazon. Okay. Yeah, so if people really want an easy entry of the book, you know, if people don't want the, you know, if they don't want a hard copy because they're trying to cut down the stuff in their house, and you know, for for this is definitely worth more than the dollar that you know someone would pay for, uh, you know, for 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 you know for a book. It's it's really entertaining, and 
you know, people are going to recognize some names, right? There, there are some names yeah. that people are going to recognize, and especially that second season. I'm like, oh, those guys made it up to the major leagues. So, you know, there are going to be guys that people can follow, and if you're a little bit older, you'll recognize the coaches and their personalities and may have seen them play too. Absolutely. Yeah, Trey Mancini, Mike Dostremski, Gary Allenson, Alan Mills, all those guys and more. Yeah, well, it's a wonderful read, and, you know, Greg, it was uh, excellent talking with you, and, you know, I, I really wish you luck and success with the with the book because it's it's you peeled back a layer that like you said most people don't know and might change their opinion about what it is about being not just a professional ball player but you know being part of the team staff. Of course, and just I just wanted one quick thing. I just want people to know that this is not this book is not about me being uh, me trying to show how difficult that world is. This mm. book is really. A, a backdrop to show what it's like to grow up. It's a coming of age story told via baseball.